Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, looking at Matthew 16. Hopefully, help people understand the gospel of the kingdom, because Christ came to set the captive free, and everybody is captive again. I've I've gotten several emails and notices from people talking about different things, like the 16th Amendment and... And bar certificates, we talked about that last week a little bit. But uh, the, really the problem is the same as it was at the time of Jesus Christ and the time of John the Baptist. Same as it was back in the days of Abraham, back in the days of Moses, back in the days of many of the prophets. That people keep slipping back into these covetous practices or slothful practices, sloth and avarice. Avarice desiring benefits and willing to get them at the expense of others. All these things seem to drag us back into the bondage of Egypt. Now there's all kinds of warnings from the apostles in the New Testament and in the Old Testament from the prophets as to what not to do. And they're there. They're right there in the text. But for the last 100 years... 200 years, almost for the last thousand years, there's always been an element out there muddying the waters, distorting the text. Now, for the first 500 years, uh, well, for the first 500 years, the kingdom of God was doing great. It was all over Europe. It was what we call the Dark Ages, which is really, they weren't that dark. I mean, there were places always, there was atrocities and there was dark things and there were bad things. But there were large large areas that were relatively peaceful and very prosperous. And uh, people were healthy and well off. And there were some bad things that happened. But the people were prepared for them. I mean, there was a volcanic eruptions or series of them around 500 uh, A.D. And this caused a tremendous cooling effect. Where there, I mean, there literally was no summer for several years. And crops failed. And people did a lot of, everybody went keto. And they had to do a lot of hunting to get the, the food they, they needed. Because, I mean, the grass didn't even grow. I mean, there was some grass and some, but it was, there was a lot of people living in Europe. And, I mean, there was cannibalism in China, and there was cannibalism in Europe, and we have very little data, although it's around, but you're not going to get it in your high school or college history books. You have to actually look for it. And this was climate change caused by uh, not carbon dioxide, <laughs> although there was carbon dioxide involved, but it was ash clouds that came from volcanoes and started spreading around the earth and causing a cooling effect. And we've seen that in my lifetime. It wasn't that severe, but we've seen that. And there was huge amounts of carbon dioxide released at the same time. 
But carbon dioxide is heavier than most gases, and therefore that goes down to the surface of the earth and does not cause global warming. It causes global greening. So right after this cooling period, when things started warming up, there was a huge bloom in greenery. But for a short period of time, a lot of people had difficulty. But there were a lot of Christians out there. And those Christians understood sharing. They also appear to have had some foreknowledge in their communities. It's difficult to tell. But it appears that they had some foreknowledge, just like we see Joseph had foreknowledge, of the plagues and famines coming before the Israelites went into the bondage of Egypt. He could have told his brothers and sisters and fathers, and they could have prepared. But he wasn't there to tell them, because they they had sold them into slavery. And, you know, there's also stories, you know, we have the story of Jesus Christ, who had was born a king to set the captive free, for both in Judea and Parthia and around the world, to establish a kingdom recognized by the Romans, recognized by the Parthian Empire that was growing up. But there were people who wanted to stop him wanted to put an end to him. And they attempted to by killing people. By oppressing him. But he made it through anyway. Same story exists concerning Abraham. When Abraham was born. There was prophecies that somebody was born that would show you the way. The way of righteousness. And there was an attempt to kill small children. According to ancient literature. Including Abraham, but his mother hid him in a cave. And so, for all I know that's going on now, we know that thousands upon thousands of children are being killed all the time, mostly in the womb. And there appears to be large numbers of children that are being kidnapped and sex trafficked and all that. I mean, how many, it's difficult to tell, but it's definitely going on. I mean, they've uncovered people doing it. So that means if if you find 10% of the people that are doing it, there's another 90% nobody's finding. But God sees things. God can protect people. But you need to be listening to God. And of course the Bible, that's what it's trying to tell us, is how to listen to God. Okay, when you read the Bible, which is supposed to be an inspired book, You need to be inspired when you're reading it. If you're not inspired when you're reading it, then you may miss what the author is trying to tell you. If you have been seduced by false information, false impressions, false dichotomies concerning the language, concerning the history, concerning the times... Uh, you've been given preconceived notions about what people like Matthew is really talking about. You can read things and think, oh, I, I know this because I was told this in catechism and I was told this, you know, in Bible school and I, I heard this on the news once or I saw it on a TV show and your mind will be dragged off in those directions. 
And then once you've accepted those ideas, somebody comes along and says, well, no, that's not what it means. That's not what it's saying. And so, you need to find out what it is that's true. And like I say, we can show you where they kind of steered you wrong and where they didn't mention certain things and where they don't connect this verse with that verse. And, you, and we'll show that today as we go through 16, that there's a particular verse in 16 that is interpreted in a particular way by millions and millions of people. But the same verse shows up in 18, chapter 18. And it doesn't seem to be related to what the, the context of what they suggest in, six, in chapter 16. As a matter of fact, it seems to describe something that is actually the opposite of what they're trying to tell us in 16. Or what they're trying to tell us it means in 16. Now, God is judge, but you need to be discerning of what God is telling you. And so we're going to show you. Now, we're not going to be picking on any particular religious group or anything like that. There's no point in that. But we're going to mention things that some will take as an attack. But it needs to be said just the same. Chapter 16 in Matthew. So the Pharisees and Sadducees demand a sign. And the Pharisees also, with the Sadducees, came and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now we saw in the last chapter where they were also tempting him. That why do your your disciples, you know, violate the traditions of the elders and not wash their hands before they eat? And of course Jesus came back, well why do you violate with your traditions God's law? And you create a system that covets your neighbor's goods in order to provide for the elderly and cause the young men, the sons of the fathers and mothers, to do no more out for their fathers and mothers. But they just give money to the temple and the temple's supposed to take care of them. Why do you do that? Because that's, we know later in Mark when he talks about the same thing, that it's making the word of God the non effect, and he mentions it also here in Matthew. So this when he came back with that comeback, it shut them up, it shut them down. And they did not like it. They already had been plotting to kill him. And now we see another situation where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, before it was the Pharisees and the scribes, now Pharisees and also the Sadducees, there's probably some scribes mixed in there. Are, are coming to tempt Jesus. And they say, give us a sign. Well, of course, he's giving all kinds of signs. I mean, people are getting healed. Blind are seen, lame are walking. But this is more. He, he, he wants them, he wants Jesus, they want Jesus to say something particular big is going to happen to prove that he is the Messiah. Because people are starting to suspect that. But they're, they don't really know as much about Jesus as supposedly we do. If you're reading the book of Matthew, he's giving away a lot of the end at the beginning. You know, a king is born. He's told you that. 
Of course, modern religion wants you to think that, oh, it's a king that was rejected by Jews. Although we know thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews accepted him as the king. That's why they call him Christ. That's why they said, Hail, highest son of David. They accepted him as king. But the people who sat in the seats of power, in the seat of Moses, they are the ones who plotted against him. Not all the Jews. So, you know, it just sounds me. I heard somebody talk about it, testifying in front of Congress that, that Christians have been blaming the Jews for the death of Christ for centuries. Some Christians. Well, that doesn't even make any sense. Because all the apostles were Jews. Almost all of the early converts to Christianity to follow Christ, they were all Jews. And I have even seen where people say, well, you know, that they, the kingdom was postponed because the Jews didn't accept him. Yeah, they did. It's right there in the text. You know, how, how do people even come up and say these ridiculous things? 5,000 one day or 3,000 one day, 2,000 the next. There's thousands, and these are families. Thousands and thousands of families just in Judea, just in Jerusalem. In two days. Are accepting them. Now the majority of Europe. No. But thousands upon thousands. Accepted them. And many of them Jews. So what is this. That Jews didn't accept them. This doesn't even make sense. What is this that Jews killed Jesus Christ. Well Sadducees and Pharisees did. But they were. That's a small little tiny minority. And they weren't even the legitimate government. At that time. Jesus knew it wasn't a legitimate government. That's why he knew he had to appoint a new Sanhedrin. The 70. And of course, we know there had been murder in the temple. We know the temple was instituting programs that was making the word of God to none effect. So, and we know that eventually Christ said, you know, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. And give it to another who will bear fruit. And they say out of their own mouth, we have no king but Caesar. When they said that, they, they left the kingdom. And everybody who followed Jesus were the Jews. There were people still calling themselves Jews, but they were the synagogue of Satan. Now, some people will say, well, I'm saying something anti-Semitic. Well, that's ridiculous. Because most of the churches out there are the church of Satan too. Because Satan means adversary. And most of the churches out there are adversaries of Christ. I mean, they we just saw in the chapter before, that he says, oh, they praise me with their lips and with their mouth. But, they're, they, not with their hearts. And we know that. Because if you desire to go to men who exercise authority and have those men take away from your neighbor so that you can have free stuff and take care of you and social welfare and all this kind of stuff, that welfare is a snare. We know that because the Bible said it, Paul said it, David said it, Proverbs says it. Most of the prophets said almost identical things. So we know that. Or we should know that. But this is one of those things that preachers, we don't want to bring that up. But if they only teach half a gospel, that's the definition of a lie. The gospel they teach is a lie because it doesn't teach the whole truth. And that's what a lie is. It's not the whole truth. It's not always contradictory. It's just not Holy, the truth. So they're tempting him, and 
And he answered and said unto them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowery. Oh, ye hypocrites, he says, ye can discern the face of the sky. But can you not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Because they have to have proof. They can't see it. They don't have the faith of the woman we just saw, the Canaanite woman, who, who had her daughter healed. And she just kept pestering Jesus, kept coming after him and pestering him to heal her daughter. Because she was doing it out of love of her daughter. And she had faith. She knew that Jesus could do this. Because she could hear his message. The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't want to hear it. Kind of like Congress. <laughs> they, they don't really, oh, they'll give you lip service, but they don't really, they don't really change it. Of course, a lot of you aren't saying, asking government to do what they, you should be asking government to do. You know what you should be asking government to do? Nothing. Stop taking care of us. We'll take care of ourselves. That's what you should be asking the government to do. Of course, now to do that, you'd have to start taking care of yourself. And of course, that's what Christ is trying to get you to do. But the adulterous generation of the Pharisees and the Sadducees have created an institution that adulterates the Corban of God. The sacrifice of God. Because it's not free will offering anymore. That's why they're an adulterous generation. And he says, you seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given unto you. Unto it. By the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them. And departed. Now, the sign of Jonas. Swallowed by a, a whale for three days and of course Jesus is going to go into the grave so there, there's a prophecy here he's telling them but they have no idea what he's talking about they don't get it because they live in darkness now a lot of you can equate that because we've read the whole book or we've read enough of it or heard enough about it that we know but to them they were just absolutely what? what? what is he talking about? <laughs> but he isn't going to give it to them and we know a lot of the prophecies, a lot of the heads up forewarning that people did get, it was kind of cryptic. You know, I mean, even with Joseph and the dream of the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh got a dream. The Pharaoh knew it was important. He wanted somebody to tell him what it meant. And the only one who could tell him what really what it meant, and he could believe him, was Joseph. You, know, you saw seven cows? Well, it'll be seven the fat coming out of the river, those are going to be seven good years. And then you saw seven lean cows coming out of the river and they were skinny. Well, there's going to be seven bad years. The Pharaoh, that, that made sense. He said, oh, well, yeah, okay, I get it. So what should I do? He says, well, you need to stock up <laughs> in the seven good years. Now, now, I'm not telling you to stock up. If God is telling you to stock up, stock up. But I'm telling you to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because our treasure isn't in your food storage bin. 
our treasure is in the kingdom. And so that's, whatever God wants, that's what we should be doing. And you have to find that out yourself. And I can't tell you. But God is trying to tell you right now. But you have to get the ears from God to hear. Verse 5. And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And and they pondered and reasoned amongst themselves, saying, Is it because we have taken no bread? Which then Jesus perceived what they were saying, you know. He said unto them, Oh, ye of little faith. Because faith isn't just about trust. Faith is also about knowing. It's about that revelation. Just like the Canaanite woman knew Christ could heal her daughter. Knew that Christ had the power to do that. Knew that I needed to be persistent and humble and faithful. Because there is no other alternative. And Jesus made it difficult for her. You know, he equated her with a dog. Am I supposed to give the bread of Israel to dogs? <laughs> and she says, even the dogs can eat the crumbs of the table. And he's, she's still calling him master. She's still calling him Lord. She took it. She didn't say, oh, I'm offended at that. <laughs> she, she took it. Of course, Christ is testing her, and he's teaching his disciples who see all this. And he healed the daughter instantly, or within the hour. But he's now telling them that they have little faith. Why reason ye amongst yourselves because ye have brought no bread? You know, why are you pondering this? Do you not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves and five thousand and how many baskets ye took up? God can make food available. He could make it out of thin air. He could make it available lots of different ways. But they saw where they had nothing, where people were supposedly going hungry, and then suddenly people had enough. So he's not worried about the bread when he's made that statement. And I tell you the truth, I think Jesus kind of baited him a little bit. Because he knew, he knew they wouldn't get it. This is just like when we talked about Moses. Moses was told what to say by God, he went in and said it. It got a reaction out of the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh thought he was going to teach Moses a lesson. But actually the Pharaoh was playing right into his hands. He was totally manipulated. Do you not understand? Neither remember the five loaves. And the five thousand. How many baskets you took up after everybody ate. Neither the seven loaves. Of the 4,000. And how many baskets ye took up then? How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread? That ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Well, I can tell you why most Christians don't get it. I mean, they they can read this and they can think they get it. But the same word for leaven, I have a link there on the page, will tell you that 
the leaven of the Old Testament that you had to get out of your bread was the cruelty. The unwillingness to hear the cries of anguish of your brothers. The willingness to force the contributions. To take a bite out of your neighbor. To compel your neighbor to give when he doesn't think he has enough to share. See, how can God give you choice and keep you free if you want to take away choice from your neighbor? If you want to take away choice from your neighbor, choice will be taken from you. If you want to take a bite out of your neighbor, you will be consumed. If you want to enslave your brother, you will be enslaved. That's just the way it goes. That's, as you judge, so shall ye be judged. I mean, how many different ways have they told you this? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And that particular doctrine was the doctrine of cruelty. Because it said it's okay to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. It's okay to oppress your neighbor. The Israelites were not even supposed to oppress the strangers in their midst. Much less their brethren. But yet, that they often started doing that. And that's when they often got into trouble. Verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea... Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They think that they believe he's a holy man, a prophet. Now, I always thought that was amazing. How could he be John the Baptist? He was walking around talking to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was beheaded. They came. They got his body. They went and buried him. And they knew who Jesus was. They knew what he looked like. How could he be this? You know, a large number of Jews in those days believed in reincarnation. A form of reincarnation. They believed that the spirit of one man could end up in another man. They, they believe that that was possible. Now, I'm not saying it is, but this is why they could think that Jesus, who many knew since he was a child, was not John the Baptist. But now they think he is John the Baptist. I mean, they might have looked a little bit alike because they are cousins. But they should be able to tell the difference. And they had seen them both together. So they knew there were two guys. But Elias, how is he Elias? Elias is gone a long time ago. But of course, Elias, you know, went up in a fiery chariot, whatever that means. And so maybe he's come back. Jeremiah, well, that gets it. Or, or some other prophet. I mean, like, what, what do they think is going on here? But anyway, that's what they're saying. So it's an interesting conversation. But Jesus is leading somewhere. He knows what they're going to say. He's asking questions to bring them along. And Matthew is writing down this conversation 
to bring you along and your understanding with it. So verse 15 says, He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Now his first question was, Who do men say? Now his second question is, Whom do you say I am? Now we don't know how long a pause was. You know, in the movies there's a little bit of a pause. And and supposedly everybody kind of looks at each other and they don't know what to say. But one guy speaks up. Of course, he's always the first to action, <laughs> which gets him into trouble sometimes. But he speaks up, and, and it's Simon, who isn't called Peter yet. But Matthew writes down, and Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, when he said the Christ, he means the anointed one. Well, David was anointed. David was called Messiah, Messiah. Christ is being called Messiah. That's what Christ means. Anointed. That's what Messiah means. But he says that you are the anointed. The son of the living God. Of course all Jews at the time were considered the son of God. Children of God. Some were bad children of God. Disobedient children of God. You know like the prodigal son who goes away and everything. And he's out. And he has to come back repentant to get back in. So it's not that spectacular to believe that Jesus is a child of God. All Israelites consider themselves the children of God. But they they say the son of the living God. And if you look at the Greek, it's kind of like God is living in you. That you're anointed by God. That the spirit of God is within you. Exactly how far he takes this is difficult to tell. I mean, we can we can project a definition. But evidently, Simon knows something about Christ. That is not what is significant. It's how he knows. And so Jesus says in verse 17, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Well, they all were supposed to consider, I mean, even when they said their prayers, they prayed to our Father who art in heaven. They didn't pray to Jesus' Father who art in heaven. They prayed to our Father, because they all thought themselves as children of God. But there was something special about Jesus according to what Simon Barjona is saying. So, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Verse 18, he goes on to say, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter. And really, you could translate that thou art a rock. And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, this is one of the few places where Jesus uses the word church. And it's not the word church in the text. In the text it's ecclesia. And ecclesia doesn't mean church. But it is translated church often. It doesn't mean assembly. It doesn't mean congregation. 
Ecclesia means the called out. The Ecclesia in the wilderness was the Levites. And the Ecclesia of Christ was those he called out to be his disciples. Who, to whom he is going to appoint a kingdom. He says that. To my little flock. He didn't say, I'm going to appoint my kingdom to everybody. He says, I'm going to appoint my kingdom to the little flock. It is my pleasure to do so. And of course, when he said I was going to take the kingdom away from the Pharisees and appoint it to another to bear fruit, he's evidently talking about his little flock. Because everybody in Israel did not sit in the seat of Moses. The Levites, and whether they were Pharisees or Sadducees, they were the ones who sat in the seat of Moses. And so, this is what's changing hands. The people, because it's always been, if you look in the Old Testament, it's a free assembly, at least before the kings. And of course, that's what congregations are. They're free assemblies. Because their salvation is between them and their God, and the priests or the ministers are not standing between you and God. Hopefully not. <laughs> You have to have your personal relationship with God. Your personal revelation with God. But they have a responsibility first to God because the Levites belong to God. They didn't, the Levites didn't belong to the people, but the people had the right of a votive offering to choose which Levite would serve their tent, their family. Because it's, it's a free government. There are no taxes. Virtually no taxes. There's tithing. Which means there's no forced offerings. That's strange fire. But it, there has to be offerings. There has to be sacrifice. Otherwise you're not laying down your life for your fellow man. So he says... That Peter knows what he knows because it was revealed to him. And because that, he is blessed. Now, there are two words that can be translated into blessed. Which one is that? Well, if you're following along, you know it's makarios is the word that they have there. Which is a prolonged form of a political makar. Meaning the same thing, basically. But... And it is translated blessed a lot of times. It's also translated happier. And really what it means is happy. Happy, you know, the Beatitudes, it's it's happy is he who is humble. And happy is he who, you know, suffers for righteousness sake. Happy, because that is the opportunity. Now there are another word. You know, a noun that is translated blessed, you know, or an adjective or a verb, eulogio, which has to do with logos. And it's actually comprised of a couple different words. But it means to bless as in consecrate. So some people would have you believe that somehow or other, Peter is being consecrated the head of the church by Jesus Christ. And he is now going to be the head of the church and, and at least promoting this idea. 
But all he said is, happy are you because of this decision that you have that this to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God, and the living God is living in him. That's why he's anointed. And because he's the Christ, he is the Messiah, the Messiah. And he knows this, not because he's figured it out by the knowledge of men, by flesh and blood, but because of revelation. And because of that, happy art thou, Simon Barjona. Because flesh and blood has not revealed it to you. And then he equates this knowing that Peter has to no achievement of his own. He didn't figure it out. Wasn't flesh and blood. Wasn't because he was really smart. It was because of revelation. But this revelation is what has altered Simon to a rock. Without that revelation, Simon's not a rock anymore. As a matter of fact, in a few short verses, Jesus is going to refer to him as Satan. Is he also Satan and a rock? No, he's not a rock. But he was, what he was saying was, he was being an adversary. The rock is the revelation. That faith of knowing that is something is true. Just like with the Canaanite woman who kept following Jesus. She knew Jesus could heal. And, and she kept asking him to do it. The apostles were saying, send her away. He wouldn't send her away. As a matter of fact, he made her following him a little bit tough. A little bit offensive. And she kept coming anyway. And kept bowing down and accepting everything he said. She agreed with him. But she still begged him for mercy for her daughter. Not for herself. Because she had faith. That's how she could stay the course. Because there was a little rock in her. There was a little bit of that faith in her. Now, all that doesn't make any difference to you. What makes a difference to you is, are, is there rock in you? Is there faith in you? Are you steadfast? That's another word they use to describe Christians. Are you persevering? That's a word right from Jesus. Are you striving? Are you seeking the righteousness of God or just the self-righteousness of modern religion? So, when he says, thou art, and we can look into this word, actually on the page I have all the Greek and how it appears in the actual text. And I show you each individual word in these verses because it's very important. And we probably won't have time to go through it all in three hours. But I have it there so you can ponder it and just let the Spirit lead you. But I lay it out there for you. I may add even more. But the rock that he's going to build his church on is not Simon, because he's not the rock. It's faith that is the rock. That is the revelation. The revelation of God, which is what faith is. I mean, you can have faith in your Chevy. You can have faith in your Ford. (laughs) You can have faith in Donald Trump. But the faith in God, which is given to you by God, that's the rock. That that is what he will build his church on. And we'll see that analogy in numerous other statements. 
you know, that you build your house on sand or you build it on a rock. If you build it on the knowledge of men that comes by flesh and blood, you're building your house on sand. But if you build your house on the rock of faith, then it can, it may withstand. And of course, what Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church, my ecclesia, on that rock of faith. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, is he talking to everybody? I mean, he's been talking to everybody right along. He did make an address directly to Peter, and we see that in the syntax of the Greek, that he specifically, and even in the word, Simon Barjona, happy art thou, Simon Barjona. But he's saying it in front of everybody. But now he says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And there's two interpretations here. One is the most common amongst certain religious groups. I really don't have a survey to tell you exactly which one. But he says, And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Is Jesus giving Peter the power to rule over the gates of heaven? Bind people, bind things on the people, loose things on the people, or is this statement the key to the kingdom of heaven? Didn't we just say that if you sell your brother into bondage, you yourself will go into bondage? Because you bind your brother, you bind yourself. You free your brother, you free yourself. If you need forgiveness, what is the key thing you need to do? Forgive others. If you want to be given to, what do you do? You give. If if you want life more abundant, you lay down your life. This statement, whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven is the key. That, and since there's two approaches here. It is the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That is what he was giving them. He was giving them the keys. All of them. He was giving us the keys. But if somebody says, no, he was giving to Peter the keys. You're going to miss that. You're not going to realize. And I I, I just find it astounding that people don't realize it. Like I said, you know, if you want to be forgiven, you have to forgive. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. If you bind others, if you judge others, you shall be judged. If if you covet your neighbor's goods, your goods will be forfeited. If you make slaves of your neighbors, you shall be made a slave of. If you bite your neighbor, you shall be consumed. Those are all showing you the keys to the kingdom. Which is why I have to keep talking about them over and over again. <laughs> kind of important. And then we go into verse 20. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus, the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, the highest son of David, the rightful king of Judea, 
from the seat of Judea, which was Jerusalem. And there was no king there, like we said. There was no king there in Jerusalem at that time. The one who Herod had assigned it to, Herod had executed. Later on, uh, Herod Antipas would want that position. He wouldn't get it. Later on, another Herod would want that position and his belly would rupture open. Because that was a sin against God and man because nobody sat in that position of king but Jesus. And he still sits there. And if if you want to reclaim Jerusalem for the kingdom of God, you need to be following the ways of Christ. And if you have created a nation that has a heavy progressive income tax, you're not following the ways of Christ. If you have created a nation that does not have just weights and measures, you are not following the ways of Christ. If you want to kill others, I'm not talking about self-defense. I'm talking about kill others. And vengeance. You're probably not following the ways of Christ. Nor the ways of Moses. Like I said this morning. Moses and the Israelites were set free. They didn't have to kill the Pharaoh. They didn't have to kill Egyptians. As a matter of fact, Egyptians went with them. They They... Filled the water vases of Egyptians when the plagues were there, according to people like Philos. They were a blessing to the people of Egypt. And they would have been a blessing to the Pharaoh, but his heart was hard. And now, what I've just said here, Simon Barjona was not appointed the head of the church. He has no authority over the church. He has authority over Simon Barjona. And it is up to Simon Barjona to give God the authority in his life. The same as it is with you. And, you know, if you're husband and wife, you're inexplicably linked as one. So now, both of you have to work together to help both of you give God the power over your life and guide you. And so, what is Paul going to say later? He's going to say, Wives, be submissive to your husbands. But husbands, serve your wife as Christ served the church. How did Christ serve the church? He laid down his life for the church. I can tell you men who do that for their wives, their wives find it much easier to be submissive to their husbands. But of course, wives, be submissive to Christ. Let Christ guide you in that. And if you get mad at your husband and you're screaming and yelling at your husband, <laughs> chances are that's not Christ. So, I mean, you can tell a lot of times whether it's Christ or not by the way in which you react. So be patient with one another. For some reason, we went off on that side tangent, but I don't know who all is listening. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> so, there's probably some time checking for hands to see if any questions came up. It looks like no activity. Lots of people, but no activity. <laughs> so, maybe I have you enthralled. So, I'll go back <laughs> and finish this. We'll get a little bit farther along in this 
and, and we might get to the end because I have a bunch of notes down at the bottom. I usually don't do this. But this is a very pivotal point. The middle of Matthew is around chapter 13, depending on how you figure the middle. But we went through 13, 14, 15. There, there was a turnaround at 13. And we started going this other way or more extensively towards the kingdom. It's getting deeper and deeper. But of course, that's why some of these verses have been attacked by religions who want to pervert them for their own purposes. You know, I, I remember that some of the early Christians who created Christian communities, so-called Christian communities, and they weren't real bad people. But there was a woman who said that we all had access to the Holy Spirit. Each of us do. And they hung her. They hung a woman for her beliefs. And they said they were a Christian community. Because that threatened the power structure of that community. It's just shocking to me. Now, I don't know the woman, but what she said, I can't disagree with. And we'll show you as we go through this and, and go show you parallel verses by Matthew. Almost identical verses. And what he, and the context of those verses, which is not appointing Peter in any way, shape, or form. But in order to get to that, let's get to the end of this. Because I don't want to jump around too much. So verse 21, which starts in a section I call, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. Now we've seen the reference to the miracle of Jonah. And now he's talking about from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again on the third day. So he's telling them that and explaining these things to them. And I don't, we don't have detailed conversations of how this went down. And I don't think he's quite as abrupt as that statement is. But that's just conjecture and guess on my part. Maybe revelation. I don't know. I can't guarantee it. You shouldn't believe it even if I said it was. You have to look for your own revelation. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Rebuke Christ. Saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said to Peter, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. From the beginning, when we're born, we're raised up. We see our parents. Hopefully, we see our parents. We see our grandparents. And if we're doing things according to the way that was explained in the Old Testament, we grow up under the authority of our father and our mother. And we see our father and our mother taking care of their father and mother. And then when we get older and our father passes down to us what he has produced... And work together even with his sons and his unmarried daughters to produce. That 
they will now take care of their parents. So that their parents' days are long upon the land, so their sons and daughters can see them do that, so that their days will be long upon the land. But if you turn that job over to somebody else to take care of your parents, you make the word of God to none effect. And of course, that's what everybody has done in almost every single country. Now, some people have these social welfare systems to take care of their parents, and the the family, the children still step up. But the system by its nature is going to cause some men to do no more ought for their parents. How many of these young men who should be supporting their parents are actually living at home with their parents, depending upon their parents' social security check to support them? Now, I, I will let God be the judge, but there's something seriously going on that is not a good idea. But anyway, Jesus is talking about things that be of God would be sacrificing yourself to take care of your parents. And things that be of men might be as far as sacrificing your parents so that you can have stuff. <laughs> so that you can be free. So that you can have your cake and eat it too. And the the nature of that, you know, I can tell when a cow is really time to sell or eat, because we eat the old cows out here, when she stops taking care of her young. When taking care of the young, has, she has lost interest in it. She She has run her cycle. She's no longer protecting the herd. She's no longer protecting her own calf. So it's time that she now goes and protects the whole herd by feeding the herdsman and his family. Because the herdsman and his family is who makes it possible for the herd to survive. We're the ones who go out and protect them. We're the ones that put up food for them when the weather is bad. When there's climate change. called winter. (laughs) So... The herd is constantly sacrificing itself. Every generation is sacrificing itself for the next generation. Because the kingdom of God is from generation to generation. And if you have no children, help take care of other children. It's that care, not losing the sight of that care, which makes us men of God. But if we lose sight of the care for others and we just care about ourselves, that is things of men. That is the selfishness of men. Verse 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. What did we just read there? Is that not a similitude of the keys of the kingdom? For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? But his life. He lays down his life so that he can pick up a life 
more abundant. This is the nature of creation. This is the keys to the kingdom. This is the nature of God. God had the power to make you all a bunch of butt puppets. Where he just controlled you and manipulated you and just made you do whatever he want. Like a, a little kid in the sandbox. You know, moving his toys around and he's creating all the vocabulary for his heroes and his G.I. Joe or whatever. Or a girl playing with her Barbie and putting all the words in her mouth. And they're just, you know, the little puppets of a child. But God didn't do that. God gave us some choice. He empowered us with choice. If we're made in the image of God, we need to not take away the choice of others. So that God will give us more choice. That is the key to the kingdom, like what we just read there in verse 25. Just like we read up there in verse 19. Those are the keys. If you bind your neighbor, you will be bound. If you loose your neighbor, you will be loosed. If you find yourself in the bondage of Egypt, the key thing is to strive for the righteousness of God, not for the benefits of Pharaoh, so that you can free your neighbor from your burden. You're a burden on your neighbor. You want to create an alternative system that does not burden your neighbor except by his choice. Where he chooses to help you and serve you. This is why all the hospitals are closing. Because we haven't been doing that. It's why the entire nation is bankrupt. The entire world is bankrupt. It's why the traveling merchants of the earth have a full stock and own everything. It's because we haven't been doing what Christ said. We've been doing the antithesis of what Christ said. Christ is talking about going and sacrificing himself in Jerusalem. Suffering all these pains. And Peter says, don't do that. You don't want to do that. Jesus says, you're you're saying, you're an adversary. And then he goes on with this explanation that, that whosoever will save his life shall lose it. He's talking about the same thing. But he who will lose his life for my sake shall find it. He no greater love out of the man than he lays down his life for his fellow man. This is the key to the kingdom. Coveting your neighbor's goods to the men who exercise authority is the antithesis of the keys to the kingdom. Saying that Jesus Christ put somebody to exercise authority over the church and over the ministers of the church is the antithesis of what Christ is doing. And we will show you that more and more. As we go along. So I have a whole section down here. Right now it's Greek V17 to V19. And it's all about what we just read. Verses 17 through 19. These three verses have been extremely important to some churches. That want to believe that Christ was appointing Peter to be the head of the church. But we know the head of the church is the Holy Spirit. The head of the church was God. Even back in the days of the church in the wilderness. The the Levites did not belong to the high priest. The Levites did not belong to Aaron. They also didn't belong to the people. They belonged to God. 
They had no inheritance in the land as individuals. They were a collective. Like the stones of the altar. The stones of the altar, you don't mortar them together. The stones of the altar, you don't hew them. You know, stone cutters, cutting them to fit together. Authorities exercising power over them. You don't do that with the altar of God. They're unhewn stones, unregulated men, men of charity, that have to come into one accord, fit together by the leading of the Holy Spirit, by that rock of faith. They have to fit together somehow. And and the contributions they receive that will be their responsibility to rightly divide from house to house must be the result of that same faith. That same divine spirit helping them know how to rightly divide from house to house. That is the church established by Christ. But those three verses are used. Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges points out in you know their commentary on the, these verses out that the revelation Peter confesses is not known to Peter by flesh and blood. He didn't figure it out. That knowing was revealed to Simon, who was not yet called Peter, but not through man, but God, God himself, the Spirit of God, writing it in his heart and his mind. The phrase flesh and blood was a common Hebrew expression denoting a contrast between the spiritual and the physical. Between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. In the next section I I, I quote verse 18 that are Peter and upon this rock. I'm actually quoting Ellicott's commentary on the English reader. So I went through all kinds of different commentaries to see what other men thought of it. And, and they, they get bits and pieces of it, but we're going to try to put it together. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit has to fit these pieces together, just like the stones of the altar. It is not easy in dealing with a text which for many centuries has been the subject matter of endless controversies to clear our minds of those afterthoughts of theology which have gathered around it and in part at least overlaid its meaning. So, they're giving us a heads up that this is difficult because of the preconceived notions that we talked about at the beginning that come from this controversial argument between different denominations. But of course, there is only one denomination of the church established by Christ, and that denominator is Christ. So what Christ says should settle this. But people have a difficulty with what Christ said when you point it out, which we will do. Elliot goes on to ask, what is the rock? Peter's faith, which is subjective. Well, maybe. If Peter's faith is of his own mind, it's subjective. Or the truth, he says, objective, which he confessed. I mean, he's made a very clear statement, which was the truth. But see, I think what 
Elliot is thinking is that Peter's faith is a product of opinion, which would be subjective. Because we know opinions from Peter were not very often accurate. He was wrong a lot. His opinion that Jesus shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Wrong, bad opinion, very subjective to the emotion of Peter. He wasn't thinking, he was, that was not a revealed answer to Peter. He wasn't being much of a rock. But faith that is given to you by God is not subjective. It is the truth. But which faith is that? You know, and see, our minds are deceptive things. And we can think, well, yeah, I believe. You must always question. Not question your belief, not question God, but strive to make sure that it is God's faith put in you by His hand and not your own imagination. Because we can deceive ourselves better than almost anybody. But I go on to say, but the rock may just as well be the revelation. And I give you the Greek there. You can look it up. There's a footnote. Which was given to Simon as the truth by the Father of Jesus. My Father has given this to you. Which has been delivered by the way of the Spirit. And not the way of flesh and blood. Simon did not figure this out by eating of the tree of knowledge. This is another way to say the same thing. But he received it from the tree of life. He was willing to see that. There was a lot more he was going to have to see. But that little bit, which is an important thing, he did see. But this is an example of knowing. Because they people didn't know. We knew from the beginning we saw all these hints. We know we're reading the Bible. We know it's about Christ. We know Christ is supposed to be the Son of God. We know that he was born to be a king. We know all this stuff. They don't know all that. They don't know for sure who he is. There's, they know he's a teacher. They know John the Baptist liked him. He was John the Baptist's cousin. And John the Baptist wasn't going around doing all these miracles. As a matter of fact, he just got his head cut off. So, you know, they're afraid to go to Jerusalem. Jesus says, no, i got to go to Jerusalem. And they say, well, don't do that because I, you know, now you're talking like men, afraid to do what God wants me to do, the Father wants me to do. Not that Jesus wasn't concerned about that either because we know in Gethsemane he was very concerned about that. So anyway, this idea of what is the rock, Elliot goes on and writes that the poetry of the Old Testament which associated the rock with the power of God not man, is seen in Deuteronomy 32.4, Deuteronomy 32.18, Second Samuel 22.3. And this is Elliot. So, so I haven't looked at every single one of these verses, so I don't know how accurate it is. But I bet you I could come up with a lot. Well, I do, did come up with a lot of other verses. Christ is called a rock, Matthew 21.42. Jesus saith, Unto them, did ye never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's talking about himself. He is the stone that the Pharisees rejected. But it's the cornerstone. It is from what everything, it is the denominator from which everything is measured. 
Psalms 118.22 is the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the quarter. So Jesus is quoting Psalms 118.22 and Isaiah 28.16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. So we see that Jesus, this is prophesied because it's a precept. That Christ is the stone because Christ is moving from faith in the spiritual realm. He is guided by the spiritual realm which has a God, which is also the God of the physical realm, but it is the God of heaven. And it it is the creator of this world and it is the guider of this world, but it gives you choice as to accept that guidance or reject it. If you reject it, where are you going to go? And of course, this question will eventually be asked by even Simon. Where else will we go? <laughs> because, I mean, like, your your alternatives, I mean, it. the fact that you have no other alternative is more obvious the more you operate in the Spirit. Because you, you can see all around you the flesh killeth. Because... The, 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 this this is a planet of decay. But from that decay, more life has come. Generation after generation passes away. But if you lay down your life in this generation for the next generation, which is, you know, one of the things that is so important is the training up of your children. Fathers, teach thy sons. And instead, we send them away to schools. And now, you know, it was... You know, I was in private schools. I had friends who went to public schools, close friends, and their parents put them in public school. They didn't want to pay the tuition, and or whatever reason. But I saw the difference because he would tell me what they were doing in their public schools, and then I would know, like, God, oh, we never do that. And you know, he got into all kinds of stuff that we simply weren't exposed to in the private school. Not that it wasn't around in the private school. It's always around. Corruption's always around. Teenage boys, teenage girls, they do stuff. It it was around. But we had a, you know, of course I was a little bit more naive in some ways because I was ADHD. I was all over the place. <laughs> but, uh, but I was fascinated by stuff. Fascinated by everything. Everything was a fascination to me. And and I was obsessed with the fascination rather than the things themselves. Because I'd be interested in this thing and then this thing would start moving I'd be interested in that thing. <laughs> so nothing took me down one path too much. I mean, when I was about 13, there were temptations coming along from their friends and everything. But when I was 12... I, I was actually ostracized from almost all my friends for an entire summer. That, there was a fight. I was in this fight. I was protecting somebody who was being picked on. And uh, and guys tried to gang up on me. And I fought back and everything. And it was eventually broke up by an adult. I mean, we were down in headlocks punching each other, you know, kids, 12-year-olds. And... Uh, uh, we were both bruised up, cut up pretty good. 
And the next day, everybody had decided that I was a bad guy. And uh, I don't think I was. <laughs> and the guy fought. Now, there was a guy who probably ended up in prison someday. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I hope he didn't. But uh, he was a wild kid. I could give you his name. We can look him up. But uh, anyway, uh, it was, I was ostracized. And I thought, well, okay. You know, and to me, justice was everything. I thought, like, if you guys want to be that way with me because I defended somebody who somebody was trying to hit in the back with a rock and a stick, uh, and I stopped him from doing that, and that's where the fight started. I didn't even necessarily like the guy that they were trying to hit, but the guy's back was turned, and they were going to hit him, blindsign him from behind. And I pushed the guy. So it threw off his attempt to hit this guy from behind. And because I saw that wasn't fair, hitting him from behind. He hadn't hit anybody. He was an older kid, but he was kind of a coward. And so it ended up, one thing led to another, and we ended up in this fight. And uh, he was pretty black and blue. Uh, I I was pretty bumped up too, but I didn't I didn't bruise as easy as he did. Evidently, <laughs> I was kind of shocked when I saw him. He had two black eyes and <laughs> swole. Marks on his face, but uh, I, I, I attribute it to my bony knuckles. But for a year, these guys didn't want to play with me, and for a year, I spent my almost every you know free time out on the bios. And uh, from about eleven, I guess I was probably about eleven when this happened, and into twelve, and uh, you know I was catching snappers and alligators and water moccasins and coral snakes and sidewinders and had menageries of critters uh, that occasionally my mom said I had to get rid of. <laughs> I was learning to skin squirrels and catch possums and all these things because I was still very active, but they didn't want to have anything to do with me. So I And we were kind of a little bit, we weren't isolated, but I didn't have any neighbors right next to me. Uh, that had kids my age. By the time they started getting interested in the woods and the things that were in the woods, I was an expert. And so now I was in the center of things. But then, you know, 13, 14, this is when kids start, boys start getting into stuff they shouldn't get into. Well, lo and behold, the next, but before I started my freshman year of high school, which I was go- destined to go to the seminary, all of a sudden, Moved to another area entirely. Another state entirely. And so I lost all contact with him. And then I went in the seminary. And so I wasn't exposed to a lot of the temptations that I would have been exposed to. Which is a godsend. But so there were lots of things that were protecting me from getting involved in stuff that I really shouldn't get involved in. And the fact that I was in private school and all this stuff. And had pretty good parents who kept an eye on us and everything. But this day and age, you send your kids away to public school, there is nothing. They will be exposed to corruption by adults, by their peers, by the media, everything. You know, I pity the kid who is turned over. So you need to form a different society. You still live in the world, 
But you need to be getting together with other people that are home teaching their kids and working together to help people do that. Sometimes both parents have to work. And it's handy to have a community about you. Not a commune, but a community of people who voluntarily come together to help one another raise their children. And when you help others like that, according to the keys of the kingdom, God will help you. You, because you loose them from their burden. You carry your burden. You come together not to have other people carry your burden. You carry your burden. But you come together to help other people carry their burden. And that mutual willingness to sacrifice yourself for one another will bring God in. And we'll see that. And in the explanation that Matthew gives us concerning these same verses that we just read there that are found in another location. So, Simon did not figure this out by eating of the tree of knowledge, but by eating of the tree of life. So he was close enough to that, but he still didn't get everything right. Elliot is talking about this poetic nature, uh, this metaphor of the rock. And Christ is the rock. Christ is called a rock in Matthew 21, 42. We saw that in Psalms. He's just quoting Psalms and Isaiah. Did I say Isaiah before? 28, 16. But we see the metaphor of a stone or cornerstone repeated in Mark 12, 10, Luke 20, 17, Acts 4, 11, Ephesians 2, 20. So, all the way down into the epistles and our are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Didn't say Peter. Even Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 8, he says, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So they're disobedient. Peter's not talking about he's the head of the church. Now he does speak up often. Peter stood up and said something. And and he gave his opinion. And it was often right. But sometimes he had struggle coming to that opinion. But he shared it. And he got lessons from Paul. Paul wasn't the head of the church, but he had the conversation with Paul. So Paul sees some things that I didn't think about. And it's amazing because, you know, not too many days before Paul was persecuting the church. Now all of a sudden he's coming along saying that we need to do this and this and this. And Peter's listening and says, you know, listen to my brother Paul because he's going to try to explain things that are hard to understand. And one of the things that makes it hard to understand is the misinformation that other people give us. Peter was certainly not the rock of faith up to that point. By verse 23, Jesus even tells him, Get ye behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. Peter was often impatient, judgmental. He was kind of a chauvinist, quick to anger and to violence, and also fear. Denouncing Christ. That's not a rock. Denouncing Christ is a big deal. Christ knew it. 
Christ in all these conversations knew where he was taking people. In that moment, he answered the question Jesus repeated when no one else did. But he did it because of revelation. Not because of flesh and blood, Simon. Because of the rock of revelation. And that's what Christ is building his church on. So you want to seek that revelation. And when you do, that quest is sometimes very subjective. Because we're often tossed to and fro. So this is why we have to be willing to come together in congregations and have the conversations. And allow people the right to disagree. But when they disagree, listen, hear them out. Try to, don't, you know, I used to have a friend who, who he, and he's still confused about the kingdom. He's, he's a great follower of whatever theology he happens to accept at a particular time. And deep down, he, he's not a bad guy. But he doesn't understand the kingdom. He's still preaching false Christianity. And, and he imagines that he has saved himself because he, he thinks a thought. It's just not the case. And and it, and I, I trust in God. He's moved long ways away from here, thousands of miles. And I hope that he... But he used to talk to me about his newfound ideas about interpretation of the Bible. And he's talking to me. And you know how he, he says this and he says that. And his head is bobbing up and down like he wants you to get your head bobbing up and down. You know, like people say, right, 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 right. And you're supposed to say, right. And then they go on. And except I... I, I was mannequin, man. I would not move my head up and down because I didn't believe it. And I, I didn't think he had it right. And when I tried to tell him, oh, geez, he just, he tried to turn it into an argument. I said, I'm not trying to argue. I just disagree. If you want to know why I disagree, I will tell you. And And he used to struggle because he couldn't get around the fact that I knew the Bible pretty good. And he would... Because you know, every time you made a point, he would jump over to another verse. This is a common tactic of people. They make it more and more complicated. They jump over to another verse. You just showed them that the verse that they were interpreting, if it's if their interpretation is true, it conflicts with this very clear statement over here. And they don't like that. So they, instead of addressing that, they go on to a different verse entirely. They jump to another point. They're hop, playing hopscotch out there on the rocks. Trying to say, oh no, no that's not it because of this. And well, what, ha- what happened to this over here? This showing you that you're wrong about this conclusion. But he's, you know, it, and if you study arguments and fallacies and straw men and everything, you can see what they're doing. And they can consume all your time because they're fervent. In their belief. But their belief is in their ideology. It's in their catechism. And I understand that temptation to do that. Because that's your life vest. That, that's what keeps you afloat in an insane world. But if you want to seek the kingdom, you're going to have to learn to walk on water. You might have to learn to swim. <laughs> but eventually you're going to have to learn to walk on water. Which is a very precarious place. It's not solid ground. But 
that's ultimately going to be the rock. So the next section I had is there is the blessed, and we kind of talked about that. It doesn't mean consecrate. The word they have there means happy. Happy because you received revelation from God, not because you figured anything out. Not because you're smarter or a man of authority or any of that stuff. But happy. The kingdom, you know, Christ is going to appoint the uh, the kingdom to the apostles, his little flock, in accordance to his plan to take the kingdom from the Pharisees because their Corban was bringing the people back into the bondage of Egypt, which was making the word of God did not affect. It's weakening the people. And of course, we've talked about that. So the next section is the person. Was Christ saying to Simon was blessed, that Simon was blessed with an office of leadership so that we should become a respecter of Peter and his office? And if Peter says it's this way, we have to do it that way. Because we respect the office of Peter as the leader of the church. Is that what Jesus is doing? As the head of the church? We we were never meant to be respecters of persons. And, and there are all kinds of verses that point this out. That we're not to be a respecter of persons. Why do we think that this is what Christ was doing? We're not to be a respecter of persons. It was said that in Exodus, it says that in verse after verse after verse, that we're not to be a respecter of person. And here, there are churches that make want us to believe that Christ is setting up somebody of authority to exercise authority one over the other to dictate to us what we are allowed to believe or not to believe. And we're not necessarily to go to the Holy Spirit, we're just to go to this person who holds this office. That's contradictory to almost everything that Christ says, and we'll show you a number of places that it's contradictory to. God does not want to take a choice away from anybody. And he's certainly not going to give your right to choose to somebody else, and then we have to become a respecter of the office that that person holds. That is that is the way of Nimrod. That is the way... Uh, of the world. That is the way of King Saul. That is not the way of God. He doesn't want you exercising authority one over the other. So, anyway, like I said, and and I've kind of gone through it, but we we go through it here further, that, uh, and and I can, well, I'll take you all the way down to duplicate keys. That's the section down there. Matthew 18, 18. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's the key. He just gave you the key again. In Matthew eighteen eighteen. And and so what does he say the then the next moment? Well, go to Peter and he will tell you, because he's the one that has no, he's not saying it this to Peter. He's telling us, again, repeating to us what the key of the kingdom is. It's not coming down from a hierarchy. It's coming down from the Holy Spirit because if you, it is the revelation of the Holy Spirit that is the rock, not Peter. In Matthew 18, 19, he continues that statement of 18, 18. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth 
as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, that's according to my character, the real character of Christ, which comes to sacrifice himself so that others might be saved. There am I in the midst of them. There's no mention of Peter. There's no mention that Peter has the power to bind or not to bind. He's saying that two or more of you gather together in his name. That's it. Because you can't gather together in his name unless you know his name. You don't know his name unless you get close to the tree of life. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can give you the ears to hear and the eyes to see. But he's not setting up Peter to rule over the church. He's setting us all up to be ruled by the Holy Spirit so that we all may be filled with that rock of faith. And that is the message there. Now below that on the page, I have it all broke down into the Hebrew. And I could go through that at some time and show you, but I don't feel inclined to do it right now. But all the different words of at least 16, verse 17 and 18 are there. I thought about putting in 19 as well. But I don't know. I think it's kind of clear. We'll have this conversation on the network. People can tell me, do you get it? Do you not get it? Does it make sense to you? I know it's going to upset a lot of people. But uh, the reality is, I think it's very important that we know this because nobody's getting into the kingdom of God because they joined some church that has some leader that can exercise authority one over the other. You each have to seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. In order to receive that, each of you have to open up your hearts and your minds to expose the dark places of your hearts to that light. When you do that, you see yourself as you really are. And when you see yourself as you really are, and forgive yourself, forgive those who may have led you into that. Like I said, I was protected from being corrupted by my friends and uh, buddies. And then I was protected from being corrupted by the ministers of the church. Not that I, I have been corrupted to some degree, but, you know, uh, it could have been a lot worse. I have actually thanked God for not giving me much money when I was young. Because <laughs> it would have made me reckless and foolish. And maybe even arrogant. I don't know. But I know that a lot of money can be a lot of temptation. And you don't want that temptation. It's a burden. You know, Michelangelo talks about a woman who was very beautiful and she disguised herself as a not very beautiful woman. You know, she put stuff in her clothes to make her look kind of frumpy and and she made her hair matted and and put dirt on her face to kind of make her look so she wasn't attractive. But he said he saw that she was attractive because he studied anatomy and people and, and he could, you know, had the artistic eye. But she hid her beauty because 
her beauty was a temptation, not only to her, but to men who might want a quarter for her beauty. But her real beauty was in her heart and in her, in her soul. And that's what you don't want to lose. But the world will tempt you away from that and make you think that the things that the world has to offer are the answer for your happiness. But as we see with Peter, happy is he because he knew something by divine revelation. He just knew it to be true. He needed to learn that there was a lot more that was true (laughs) until the Holy Spirit... I mean, can you imagine the trial of Peter in his own court after he denounced Christ knowing that he not only denounced Christ but Christ knew that Peter was going to denounce him what a he he Christ knew Peter was a weasel <laughs> A cheese-eating weasel. <laughs> I don't know if he's a cheese-eater. But uh, the cheese-eater is a stoolie. He didn't, he didn't turn Christ in like Judas Iscariot. But, uh, but he certainly didn't stick by him. He tried to, but of his own strength, he couldn't do it. We have to realize we're not going to find this out because of our own strength. That's a great temptation to the strong man, to the smart man, that he's going to depend upon his knowledge. Ultimately, no, it's... It's God's power that shows us the way. But but how do we get closer to that? What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loose on heaven. If you want to be a free soul under God, you have to free other people. In order to free other people, you have to create an alternative to the welfare system of the world. And we've shown you this in in the Free Church Report, how men can come together... And do this. Men and women can come together and do this. But I just show you the technicality of it. You cannot do it without the Holy Spirit. But if we actually do it, the Holy Spirit will come. And people always say, if you build it, they will come. I'm not caring about whether they come or not. (laughs) My answer is usually, if they build it, they'll be there already. But if we build it, I pray the Holy Spirit comes. But it requires the intent of why we have to build it. Not to save ourselves, but to save others. That is the key to the kingdom. We free others so that we may be free. Christ came that you might be saved. That the whole world might be saved. The whole world wasn't saved. <laughs> and so... Uh, we will come back and reference this as we get farther on. Eventually, we will do 1818, and that will bring us back to this. Uh, but I think it's really kind of cut and dry and simple. And hopefully, as we go through, I'll find more quotes. I may go look up a lot of those quotes that I, I got out of Elliot. You know, Pope Gregory was one of the first popes that was actually offered the title. I don't remember which Gregory was. There was a couple of them. He was offered the title of Pope, Popa, and uh, his resp- he refused it. He wouldn't take the title, and he said that whoever takes that title is the Antichrist. You know, he said that that is just not correct. He knew that much, and I think he was wrong about other things, but at least he knew that much. 
So this is the story as I has been related to me, and I don't have all the verification of this, but it seems to be a fairly accurate source. So they gave the title to a, a guy in Constantinople who was a bishop in Constantinople, and they said that he was uh, given the title and he accepted it. And his name was Justin the Fat. That's how he was known, Justin the Fat. I don't, I don't know how fat he was, but. Uh, he took the name Pope. After Pope Gregory died, a number of years after he died, they went back and they started all the documents writing Pope Gregory. They gave him back the title. And since he had been dead for a number of years, they heard no objection. <laughs> so that's where the title first came in. Is And this is long after Peter. And they found where a... Uh, one of the early bishops of Rome was referred to on his coffin. They have his coffin still. And it's carved on his coffin. My dear Popa. And it was carved on there. And so they said, well, see, he was addressed as Popa. So the, the title of Pope, because that's a, been a controversy for many, many years. This idea that Peter was, which is what we were referring to. All this may not be in the final recording. But... Well, it ended up that that was carved on there by that bishop's son, (laughs) who was also a bishop by that time. And he carved to my beloved Popa, or something along those lines in, in, uh, you know, basically Latin. Because that was his Popa. (laughs) That was his Papa. (laughs) It was just a, a term of affection. But yeah, no, Peter was never addressed as the Pope. Because we were to call no man father. But of course, when the Church of Constantine came in, Constantine was the Pontific Maximus of this new church set up by Constantine. And he tried to bring a lot of the bishops that existed in the church established by Christ were not bishops who exercised authority, but were the best servants of servants of servants. And like I said, at the Council of Milan, he had 319 of these guys show up. I don't even know that they were all bishops. But at the very next council, only about 150 show up. And before that first council was ended, many of the bishops who came left because they didn't want to have anything to do with this. And they would not accept any of the gifts offered by Constantine. Because that was blood money. That was from men who exercised authority. Men who killed their partners. But the bishops that he sanctioned became very prosperous. And the new Christians who simply went and got baptized. Were now going to the church to get their social welfare. But the social welfare of the unrighteous mammon of Caesar had collapsed, utterly collapsed. There was nobody hardly getting welfare anymore, except in some of the cities, but it, it had fallen short. Thousands of people had died. There had been plagues. There had been wars. There had been cities overrun, villages overrun. Things were chaos off and on during that 200 years after Christ, up until 300 A.D. And so the social welfare that was coming out of the temples was... Little and far between. And uh, it had been bankrupt off and on. So they needed to do something to 
get the loyalty of the people back. And they said, well, we're going to do it the way the Christians do it. But these new bishops, like Ambrose, picked by the whole city of Milan, not by the tens, hundreds, of thousands, he need, where's he going to get his funds? These people didn't know how to sacrifice yet. I mean, there were some that would. But they they knew that they had to appease the masses. And, of course, now they're still conquering people. I mean, Constantine wiped out entire villages and stripped it of all its wealth and sold the survivors into slavery and took the money. And the then bishop of the new Constantinian church rebuked him and said that he had to wear a sackcloth. And he supposedly wore sackcloth for several days because he had done this terrible thing. Nobody tells us where all the money went. There's suggestion that it went to the church in order to give him absolution. But there is some evidence that he didn't even wear the sackcloth. He had a look-alike wearing the sackcloth. Because he's all covered with ashes. He's wearing sackcloth to cover his face with his ashes. And I don't know if anybody had any close-up conversations with him. But he went off to do this penance. And they said, well, that's Constantine doing penance for killing all these people. But I don't know that he went and bought the slaves back and freed them. <laughs> so, but that's the kind of stuff. And then, of course, he, he was uh, excommunicating people from time to time because, uh, like, bishops were withholding grain shipments to particular cities that needed those grain shipments to help the people out because they were going hungry because commerce was being disrupted all the time. And he was, uh, and, and why were they doing that? The first case I came across where a bishop withheld shipments of grain because that's what the church is supposed to do is help provide, rightly divide the bread from house to house. It's easier to divide if it's still in the grain state. The reason he was withholding the grain is there wasn't enough people in that city to believe in the Trinity. So he was going to withhold the grain from everybody in that city because they wouldn't accept this new doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I'm not against the idea that there's a Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but the doctrine of Trinity doesn't just say there's a Father, Son, and a Holy Ghost. It adds all kinds of other rhetoric that doesn't exist out of the words of, out of the mouth of Christ. And all kinds of other things that we have to believe. And considering the fact that Christ never even said the word Trinity, why are we debating this? You know, the tenet of faith is to live by faith. The tenet of faith is to live by the faith given to us by the Holy Spirit. Not by the fact that we're respecters of persons. So anyway, we got that off my chest and I see this call. I'm going to take this call up. Turn on your mic at 5580. You have another question for me? Um, yeah, this is Steve from Colorado. Um, I, I think you kind of answered it when you were talking about uh, the story about you, were, how you were, had his friend and you would discuss things with him and how he would bob his head. And that was one of the things that I was going to ask is, you know, I I, I share with people about, um, you know, coveting your neighbor's gifts, coveting your neighbor and, and other things like that. And then the, they start talking about the rapture and then the trinity. And it's kind of funny because you, you keep answering what I'm going to ask you. And then, um, but what happens is they get into this really big, like, circle and they start talking about these doctrines that 
it's almost like a fantasy. And, 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 and as soon as that happens, it's like my thoughts go away and I, and I just don't have any words to say. And I kind of like just kind of fade off, but you know, I, I do get in there and I do talk in the beginning, but it, it's just something that um, I noticed that when that happens, it's almost like God shuts my mouth up and then I just kind of turn around and walk away. But yeah, you know, maybe it's just my imagination. Well, uh, you know, you should talk to people according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. You have to let God put it into your mouth. You don't want to become an automaton, which is what you see in them, where they're, they're literally, their brain just goes into this recital of what they, of their ideology, where they hit all the key points is like the Baltimore Catechism. They memorized all this stuff and they just start spewing it out, going through it. And, you know, that's when I'm a mannequin man. I'm just, I listen to what they have to say. But while I'm listening and, and I'm attentive to what they have to say, I do not bob my head. The guy who I realized this with, he's not the only one who does it. His name is Bob. <laughs> but he wants to be called Robert. But uh, anyway, uh, he would bob his head and I could feel him tr- and, and the tendency of my head to start bobbing because that's what we're... When you get into a conversation, you and one other person, you're literally jostling with each other, trying to fit together. And that's, to some degree, that's okay. But when you're talking about the kingdom, it should not be just you and that other guy. It should be you and the Holy Spirit. And you have to give the Holy Spirit the reins of control. And so, you, when he's talking, you may be listening, but you're waiting for the Holy Spirit to give you the next words. And the other thing that while he's talking, you may be listening attentively and you may be seeing how this is just regurgitating what he has already accepted on his racetrack of a mind. But you need to be praying for him. You need to see that he's a victim of this ideology. He's addicted to it, just like a drug and you see him, he's actually on a drug high and he's talking about it. You almost see his eyes glaze over sometimes. Or her, whoever it is. And they are addicted to it. But you stay rooted in the Holy Spirit. You pray for them. And you wait upon the Lord to give you the next thing to say. And learn to control that you don't become a bobbing head. <laughs> It's interesting because you feel you feel the tendency to almost want to let your head bob, but that's actually a form of meditation to watch that tendency and give it to God, give it to Christ, and say, "God, keep my head still." <laughs> I pray because <laughs> you don't want to give license to His regurgitation. But we're here in hopes that everybody awakens to this. I tell you, they will go away. And, you know, your silence can be one of the most profound sermons they've ever heard. And and don't think because you didn't say something, because you'll see them get more fervent, that they will come back and try to do it again with you. 
because they didn't get the satisfaction of your head bobbing, of your agreement with them. And that they will come back, but then they will be torn also, because if if they've really given themselves over to the spirit of evil, and it's not just, you know, ruts in their minds and repetition, the evil will not want to come and talk to you. You you just let God turn up the light. And you just be there. And you be still. And know what's going on. That he's a victim too. He's a drug guy. You know there's a movie. I, th- I thought about it when you were talking. It's one of those Bill Murray movies. What about Bob? <laughs> That's actually the movie. And in that. You know. You see he's tied himself. At this one scene where he ties himself to a mast. And he's wearing like two life vests. And. He's saying, yelling out, if you see the movie, it's a funny movie. Only Bill Murray could do it the way he did it. But he's saying, I'm sailing. Look at me. I'm a sailor. I'm sailing. <laughs> and he's, he's tied himself to the mast because he is so frightened, so paranoid, so locked up in his fears. And that's what these people are. They cling to these ideologies. And sometimes it's just because they're so afraid. They're such damaged goods. They've been injured and traumatized by things that maybe we've never had to deal with. So we have to be sympathetic and compassionate for them. But by the same token, we have to let the Holy Spirit guide us in what we say or what we don't say. What we do or we don't do. And that's an individual thing. And I know that... So I'm just I'm just bearing witness to what you're already seeing Uh but you, when you come across this again, I, I warn people that when they begin to see this, be careful about going out and just sharing it with everybody. You know, always have that prayer, God, what do you, before you begin to talk to someone, make a habit of saying, what is it that you want me to share with them? Don't be sharing it with, you know, like, you know, I got this pearl here. You want to see my pearl? <laughs> you know, it's, you're sir, you want to be doing it as a servant of Christ. And that's a difficult mindset to, to get in. And one of the reasons why is you're put into that mindset. So it's about surrendering to the Holy Spirit. We've all got training from the world. We all got trauma. And it, it's, it's the challenge. But, uh, I bless you in your effort. So anything else? No, I, 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 that was good. I, you know, one, one thing is that, I was reading about Abagoras. Um, I guess he was a Athenian historian. And when you were talking and, and you're explaining things to everybody, you know, and I, I remember it, it brought to my mind like how he, how he talked to Caesar and how he explained about the Christians and, and his definition about this, the way Christians are and their, you know, how they, their virtue. And, when I was when I was reading that, I was like, "Wow, you know, just can you imagine, like, you know, people actually seeing us that way and 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 describing us that way?" I just um, it just reminded me when you were talking about all that. Yeah, and see, That's you know, it. most of you know before Christ came along, there was a group of Romans or or you know of that Latin persuasion and Greeks. Uh, the Stoics were actually Greek, but, uh, you know, they were, they were about self-denial and about serving others and not putting wealth first and personal comfort first, but putting 
righteousness first. Some of these same philosophies were trickling through the Essenes as well. And you find this throughout history. You can go over to the Orient and you find it in many of those ancient religions of the Orient. The same idea. We, we even find it today in the modern uh, Falun Gong, Gong uh, meditations that have come out of China and all these people being persecuted because they have this meditation. If you look at the very basic principles, I actually put up a page on it recently because it, it's got millions of people following it. But of course, when you get these mass movements and, and uh, they don't seem to have any system of social welfare attached with them, they've got a lot of money. And they do do a lot of charity and everything. They're the same ones that put on the that Chinese ballet thing and all this stuff. And they're one of the main oppositions to the CCP, although they're supposedly non-political. And there's all kinds of misinformation out there because you have this massive movement. And, of course, there are people trying to defame it all the time. But, you know, basically they... Their basic foundation teachings is about virtue, cultivating virtue, compassion, long-suffering, self-sacrifice, and not, you know, not putting wealth first. Uh, they're kind of anti-modern medicine. They're not really anti-modern medicine. I mean, they're, their leader used to be a trumpet player. You know, he says, no, if you need to take medicine, you take medicine. And, but we, we're, we're looking at traditional Chinese medicine, which traditional Chinese medicine was generally speaking, you know, be careful with your diet, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, and they would take some things that would help them, that would provide extra minerals and things like that. But uh, basically almost everything in the Chinese medicine would always come back to yourself, uh, knowing yourself. In order to know yourself to be supposedly virtuous people. So the practice in itself is not necessarily bad, but of course, just because somebody's doing it is not, you know, it's like meditation, like I, which it, it's mostly about a meditation, which is waiting upon this power of God, the power of the Creator coming into you and guiding you to what is a virtuous state. So, in itself, it's not bad, but the reality is that, and this is one thing they do say often, you, you hear it amongst their students and some of their teachers, that it's always the individual's right to choose. And that choice comes, the more virtuous you become, the clearer the choice becomes. And so their, the design of their gathering is to cultivate virtue. And that's what that's not far from what Stoicism was, although Stoicism has its corrupt end, where people became, like India has a, a group of people they call sadhus. And these guys, they are just totally beggars. And uh, my uh, son-in-law refers to them as sad dudes. Because, you know, when he was in India and Tibet and stuff like that, they're always dirty and they're undernourished and they're they're wandering around just begging from person to person. Originally that wasn't the point. It was about self-denial so that you know if they had an extra crust of bread they would give it to somebody else and they would share. But now being you know this abject poor guy becomes a badge of honor and people give to them. But they're really often just lazy, sad dudes. 
So all these ideas, if you go back to all the religions, there's usually, at some point, they're talking about virtue, talking about caring about others, talking about justice and righteousness. But in almost every case, there's always an influx of people who come in and want to corrupt it. And there's a million ways to corrupt the righteous because it's a broad way. And so we always have to be on guard uh, not to be corrupted ourselves or even by ourselves. That it is a, it, one of the things we just saw with the, the Canaanite lady this morning is, you know, Jesus is calling her names. He's being very offensive. But she's taking it. And she's taking it with humility and respecting him. And the only way she could really do that, and I, the only way I think she did do that, is she really had faith. She really had that same faith that Peter had when he came up with that answer. But we have to have that in every aspect of our life. So we never lorded over somebody that we may know something they don't know. Because everything we know, we know by the grace of God. And when they're trying to tell us what they think they know, we should have the patience to listen to them. To some degree, because they can keep you forever. (laughs) Occasionally you have to cut them off. Or you won't get anything done, which is what I'm going to need to do here. But anyway, thanks for the the call. Thanks for the call. Thanks everybody for coming. Uh, God bless. And see you on the network. Join the congregation, everybody. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.